Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. Now, currently, I am coming to the end of what has been a fairly long series on turn-of-the-century black writers. I looked at Charles Chestnut, then I looked at W.B. Du Bois, and now I'm going through the works of James Weldon Johnson. And this... This book, because I use the Library of America, um, has basically three things in it. It's got uh, Johnson's most important novel, uh, the autobiography of Next Colored Man. Then it has his real autobiography, his personal autobiography along this way, which I looked at in the previous five for four episodes. And then the end is a selection of his various journalistic writings, some of his essays, introductions to books he edited, it, edited, and then also some of his poems. And I'm going to begin a, a couple episodes where I look at those assorted works before coming to the end of this this series on, on black writers so um, what do we have here um, it doesn't really break up really nicely it's about 200 pages so I'm gonna do it over two episodes but it doesn't really break up that that um, nicely so I'm gonna look at some essays uh, some short essays some articles from uh, the New York world which he wrote for for a while then do a couple of his essays and then next episode I'll, I'll do some more essays and then look at his verse so if you're interested in his his poetry um we'll look at it in in the next episode um but these essays and these articles from uh, the really editorials from the new york age, uh, sorry not, not the new york world the new york age really show the breadth of his his curiosities. Now, in some ways, it, it covers a lot of the ground that was already explored in in Along This Way, but it allows us to, to get a different point of view, especially in his, his more editorial work in which he was really making uh, a straightforward political point of view on, on some issues rather than the reflective nature we get in Along This Way. So Johnson wrote for, we'll start with the New York Age uh, writings, and we have a dozen or so of his editorials. He wrote these editorials of uh, when he was working for the New York Age between 1919 and 1923. So these cover really the period after he left diplomatic service and really started to get involved with African-American politics and get involved in the NAACP and that, those kinds of things. As, as you remember from our examination of Along This Way, he, he left the diplomatic service after the 1912 election when the Democrats won and you know when he didn't really get the promotion he was hoping for. After after that, he was hoping to get promoted, I think, to uh, some of the Atlantic Islands. But when he didn't get that promotion, he he decided to just quit diplomatic service. And that's when he really when he turned to New York City and started to get involved in, in African-American politics. And this led him to his leadership posts in the NAACP. So during this period, he was writing for the, the New York Age. And mostly he was writing these editorials in in the magazine and the newspaper. And, and like as editorials, they're often commenting on the news of the day. And of course, they're very political. They're expressing the politics of, of the newspaper and of Johnson himself. So yeah, they're, they're newspaper editorials. So what do you expect? But they do run the selection here. We just got a small selection, like I said, about 12 of them. But it covers a lot of different topics. So they're kind of nice to look at. Now, one of the first we have is called Do You Read Negro Papers? And basically the question that's being asked in in this one is, you know, what it or actually there's a couple that kind of get at this, but it's essentially around the question of what is the role of 
of newspapers tied to identity politics, right? And you know, and it's he's he's making clear that the purpose of these newspapers isn't news, right? That's what the dailies are for, and the, the newspapers of records. It is. He compares it actually to a religious newspaper in that it's really where someone goes to get overt political or, you know, positions on things that they're sympathetic to. He basically comes out and says that these are organs of propaganda and that our goal of these newspapers is to, to cultivate certain political thoughts among, among our readers. And so they are very consciously racial. And this is a bit like some of the cultural debates he gets involved with you know, in the context of the Harlem Renaissance in the 20s and 30s. And of course, Du Bois is in these debates, too, over what is the proper role of, of black art. And some, like Du Bois, see it much more as propaganda, right? Where you're trying to either promote an image of African-American life to the broader public or certain cultivate certain debates and discussions within the black community itself. But either way, it, it's got this propaganda role in it. Um, he's got other essays here really dealing with the Democratic Party, and he's got one, for instance, where he talks about uh, President Wilson's vision of, of new freedom. Sorry, I think I got the dates wrong. I said 1919 to 1923. These actually run from 1914 to 1923. Um, that's why he's talking about new freedom. New freedom, of course, was Wilson's line when he ran for president. In 1912, everyone was running as a progressive. And of course, you had Eugene Jett, Eugene Jett, yeah, sorry, Eugene Debs running as a socialist. So, you know, they all believed in kind of this reformist thought, although they came at it from different ways. But they had different ways. Like, I think Roosevelt running on the Bull Moose Party called his new nationalism. Wilson called his new freedom. And so they're just, you know, they have clear differences if you're interested in the politics of of the 1912 election and, and Wilsonian version of progressivism. I think his was more kind of looking for local social movements to be the leader of, of progressive politics. Even though he ended up passing a lot of policies at the national level, his original 1912 vision was a little bit more localized. And that's partially the anxiety that African-American politicians had over Wilson is that he really wasn't willing to take national leadership on a lot of issues, such as especially on racial issues and on Jim Crow. And his main argument here, and he's even speaking at one point to to Wilson, you know, someone at some point is going to have to take national leadership on on racial issues. You can't really avoid it. And it's not going to be settled till it's settled once and for all kind of from Washington. It can't be something that can be kicked um, down the road or something that just kind of given to the white South to to deal with on their own terms. Um, there's a lot of essays here. I don't want well, not a lot, but I'm sure there's a lot more in the New York age at the time. But there's a, a handful here on birth of the nation and, you know, the debate in 1915 over the making of the birth of the nation from the novel, The Klansman. People knew exactly what this book was about. It was a book praising the Klan and the movie adapted from it would be hard not to do the same thing. Um, at one point in one of these essays, Johnson compares kind of two propaganda novels of propaganda of national significance one the Klansman and the other uncle tom's cabin 
Here's just one of his statements on the making of the birth of the nation. Quote, it is inconceivable that the Dixon Griffith people, after spending thousands of dollars to produce a picture whose sole purpose is to convince the North that it made a mistake in fighting to free the slaves and to convince the nation that it must keep the N word down. It is inconceivable that we say that these people would consider introducing into their picture views from a colored school in such a manner as to such an extent as to change the whole play into the propaganda of glorious uplift of the Negro. No such change of heart can be expected, end quote. So essentially saying, you know, the, the text is what it is and there's, there's not that much you can do with it to adapt it to make it, you know, more sympathetic to blacks it's it's not possible so you know i guess that's what's one of the arguments that was being thrown out in the making of this like oh we we're adapting it from the clansmen but you know we're not really going that way we're going to try to have a different argument if any if you've seen birth of a nation you know it clearly has the view that reconstruction was a mistake that black people were uplifted to positions of political power without um you know and that was a disaster and that they didn't earn that right. And there's a lot of this kind of the same thing Du Bois talked about in his essay, The Propaganda of, of History, where he talks about this whole tradition of, of historical writing, historical writing about Reconstruction that presented it as a mistake, as a period of corruption and a period of, of poor black leadership in, in southern, southern communities. Now, we sometimes get Johnson responding to letters to the editor, and one rather fun, funny one is where a, a guy named Eugene de Buris is complaining that so much of the national music or the trend of national music is black music, and he's complaining specifically about ragtime, and he's basically saying, like, the white musicians have to adapt to black music, and white music's being kind of lost in this. Um, he, he probably's never heard of, maybe he's not considering classical music in this, which is almost all European and all white. But Johnson has a little bit of fun with his response, you know, and he calls his editorial like the poor white musician, you know, the, the, the poor white musician who doesn't have a place anymore because of the success of, of, of black musician, uh, musicians. Um, Johnson's point, obviously, is just that black musicians have a wonderful contribution to make and should be encouraged to develop their, their skills and their fortunes, as the case may be, uh, through their art. Uh, he's got essays here on the First World War and patriotism, and this is the same kind of debate that Du Bois is going through. What should be the black response to the First World War? And Johnson, like Du Bois in a way, basically thinks some flag saluting at this point in history is going to be in the long term beneficial for for black Americans. It will be a foundation from which claims for political equality can be can be made. And the fact that Du Bois said it in the and it was a common theme in the crisis lead me to believe that maybe Johnson, you know, came. I don't know how he came to this opinion if he came to it independently or not. But this is you know, among his peer group. This seems to be a, a common refrain during the First World War. He says in one of these, uh, 300 years of labor and loyalty makes this country belong to the Negroes as much as it belongs to anyone else, and a good deal more than it belongs to many who are still loving it, living under its flag. Of course, we have been wronged, we are still being wronged, but many of our rights are still denied us. But the American Negro is not going to renounce his rights because some people in the country are opposed to him having his. No, he is going to work and fight until his every right is recognized and accorded. If he should lie down and say, I ain't got any country, it all belongs to the white man, he would not deserve a country. Right? So it's 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 basically the argument is 
if you're going to make a claim to citizenship and the rights of citizenship, that means you're going to have to you know, make these sacrifices in wartime, even if you know, even if those rights that are due him and already earned and already won in, in a moral sense are denied them. And it's very similar to what Du Bois was saying about, about military service during the war. A few more things in these New York Age editorials. Um, he's got one that's rather interesting about the power of the black church and the, the historical role of, of black churches. He really believes in the power of, of black religion, even though he himself was not very religious. And, you know, he was groomed to be a preacher in his young age, but he quickly turned away from, from the church. But he still believed very strongly in the power. And we're going to look probably in the next episode at God's trombones, which is a celebration of black religious traditions. Uh, a little bit more on the service in World War One. He's got a really fascinating article here questioning and talking about the, the Japanese in the Pacific and what is the future of of these empires competing in the Pacific for dominance and this was written I guess in 19 trying to get the exact page right around 1919 right in the right on the end of the war and of course the Japan won a lot of gains in the Pacific after the war it the World War one was one of a series of wars that that led to the rise of Japan as an empire the first being I guess the Sino-Japanese War of 1895 followed by the Russo-Japanese War of 1905 and then and then World War II World War One, sorry World War II was the end of the Japanese Empire in the Pacific um, so the question here is just of of the Japanese role in the Pacific and also Japanese migration into into California is, is discussed here as well and he, we, he kind of gets into this discussion of, of kind of the yellow peril almost in California, the rise of Japanese economic power in not just in the Pacific, but also even in, in California. In the end, though, he doesn't think the Japanese are the yellow peril is is really there. He thinks um, that's not the something white people should be too worried about. Uh, he's got an article praising Claude McKay, and he does this, I think, somewhere else as well. I, I think it's in one of his introductions to his books. I think he wrote a book of, edited a book of black poetry, which we'll look at probably in the next episode. But in this one, he he praises, both places he praises, he thought a lot of Claude McKay. And we, we looked at one of Claude McKay's novels really early in this podcast, about a year ago, called Home to Harlem. And you can, you know, dig back into the podcast and, and maybe find that that particular episode. It's, it's a novel I very much like. Um, he gets into the whole Marcus Garvey debate as well. Um, he doesn't think much of Marcus Garvey. Again, very much like Du Bois. He, he shares a lot of the opinions that Du Bois had about the war and about Marcus Garvey. Now, Johnson is particular. Now, well, first Du Bois, if you remember, he was anxious about Garvey's he, he liked some things about what Garvey was trying to do, but he, he didn't trust the organization. He didn't trust his economic motives. He was worried about a lot of corruption. He just didn't think the organization, the UNIA, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, was above board. And he didn't like this kind of back to Africa narrative. He, he Du Bois certainly thought Africa was important to the broad, uh, the broader liber liberty of the diaspora. He, he was an advocate for independence for Africa, of course. It's one of the things he pushed for after World War One and, and later on in his career. And he did have these kind of pan-African 
um, perspectives, but he didn't believe in this, you know, leave America, leave America and, and go to Africa or separate. Right. He, he constantly insisted all the way back to souls of black folk that this land is earned. The ownership of this land, citizenship in the United States is, is already earned uh, through 300 years of, of unpaid toil. And Johnson, Johnson here more is, is see, trying to get at, you know, is there something psychologically wrong with Garvey with this obsession of separating from whites? Like, why doesn't he feel that black people can just walk on the streets and, and stand toe to toe with white people and look them in the eye? There is something almost absurd about these claims that that, you know, Garvey's presenting himself as, you know, we need the strong black nation and, and liberty and, you know, we need to go it on our own and Africa can be the great powerhouse. But somehow in the streets of America, you know, black people can't kind of exist coexist in the same streets and cities and he even hints at in this in this article that maybe garvey is is just saying what some white people want quote mr garvey pretends to speak for the colored people in the tropics where he comes from we feel more inclined to believe that he is speaking for his own subconscious self and that he is expressing the way he would feel if patted on the shoulder by a white man However, Mr. Garvey knows more about the people of his home than we do, but we can give him the information that in the United States, at least, there are hundreds and thousands of colored people who can and do associate with white people without feeling themselves in any way flattered by the association. They take it simply as a matter of common human relations, as a matter of course. We can also inform Mr. Garvey that there are masses of white people with whom the same hundreds and thousands of colored people in the United States would refuse to associate. Anyways. Maybe he's making too much of the fact that Garvey was from, from the Caribbean here. And then finally, we have a really wonderful editorial called The New Exodus, which talks about the Great Migration, uh, the migration of, of around a million African-Americans from the South to Northern cities during the, during the period around the, the First World War. So that kind of sums up the major themes in the, in the New York Age editorials. They're, they're, they only take a little, you know, couple minutes to read actually it's around probably 40 pages or so but they're nice it's a nice selection i think the editor did a good job of, of choosing topics kind of like the same the editor for the du bois book and sorry i forgot who he was the editor here is william andrews who is the editor of a norton anthology of, of southern writing um so Anyways, it's a nice selection, I think, that, that shows the major political issues in the backdrop of, of black politics in the years in which he was active with the New York Age. Okay, then we can jump into selected essays section of, of the volume. Uh, we start with uh, an article called The Riots and NAACP Investigation. It's about six pages, no, five pages, um, published in The Crisis in 1919 that just talks about the post-World War I racial violence that swept across the United States. It's sometimes called Red Summer. Um, it hap it, 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 these events took place both in the South, where you had the continuation of lynching. Um, it targeted both blacks who didn't serve in the war and the, some who came back from the war. It happened in cities as well. In fact, that was one of the more shocking things about Red Summer was it was affecting these places that were most affected by the Great Migration. And experienced the most demographic change due to them, uh, Chicago and Detroit and, and places like that. Now, Johnson's focus is actually on the, on the racial violence in Washington and, and Chicago, Washington, D.C., 
I mean, um, and for me, actually, he's focuses mostly on Washington D.C. And his argument here, even though it does present itself more as just a investigative, you know, essay in, introducing to the readers of the crisis the extent of the violence and some reportage on it, the point that Johnson wants to make here is: is black people really need to do need to stand up for what they've gained in in these in these urban places? You know, stand up and defend their homes. White mobs cannot be allowed to to run unchecked to roll back these gains. And, you know, and Johnson was close to racial violence, as we saw in Along This Way. There were moments in his life when he was close to racial violence. So he's not being, he's not armchair generally, I don't think, here. He, he realizes the importance of standing up to racial violence when, when it's happening. And he thinks that this will be both a way to, you basically punch the bully in the nose, if need be, but also it would be use good for the psychology of, of black people in America to to make a decision to stop or do what they can to stop the, to, to prevent this violence from from affecting them to the degree that even to the degree that this might involve organizing self-defense proactively. There's actually evidence in here about the, the that the police aren't going to help you and some of the examples and stories that Johnson relates make clear that the police aren't going to help help you in a, in a riot. All right, next we have uh, an article from 1920, uh, which actually talked a little bit about when we looked at, at uh, along this way, because it does talk about this, this moment in his life. It was published in 1920 in The Nation, so it was a... It wasn't in an African-American publication like some of these other essays. It was in a, a national news magazine. It's, it's called Self-Determining Haiti, and it's his reflections after visiting Haiti in, in 1920. And again, we have this historical context of, of 1919 and what we're going to call the Wilsonian moment. Now, Johnson's no friend of Wilson and doesn't really think much of him and certainly doesn't think much of his racial politics. But... Like Du Bois, I, I think he's interested in, maybe less directly than Du Bois was, in this idea of national self-determination and the opportunity offered by the claims of Wilson that the goal of this war is to achieve national self-determination. Right? And of course, in practice, this only really applied to some European nations. Uh, did not benefit Africans or Asians. Or, or exploited people, or oppressed people across um, the Americas and other places. Um, Haiti was certainly a place that was not enjoying self national self-determination in 1920. It was subject to what was a, a multi-decade American occupation. This occupation does not end until well into the Great Depression. I think it's 1933, the occupation that began in 1915 finally ended. So it wasn't a, a brief intervention. It wasn't like the the marines come in and you know overthrow but did overthrow someone and then leave you know as bad as that was and as common often as that happened in in latin american history this wasn't one of those cases this was a direct american occupation that lasted for for years you know longer than the vietnam war longer than afghanistan longer than iraq you know a, a perpetual occupation johnson originally seemed to support that in 1915, but he changed his mind quickly, and by 1920, he was fully calling for the end of this occupation and and self-determination for Haiti. He uses the term self-determining Haiti in the title. That's why I, I can't help but 
see the connection between the language of the 14 points and Wilson's claim of, of self-determination and, and Johnson's article here. The article basically has uh, four sections, each making a, a separate little argument. This conclusion, of course, is that the United States should should leave as quickly as possible, leave Haiti. His first argument is essentially that the U.S. invasion was hypocritical. It's built on a lie. It hasn't achieved its stated goals in, in any way, at least not it's the, the ones that have been told to the, the people of Haiti. It's against American values. It, it undermines the general trend for, for liberty. So that is where he kind of starts out. In, in a way of introducing this occupation. It's from the beginning, built on a lie, and really, you know, for the, for the goals of, of banking interests and other economic interests in the United States. The second part, called what is the United States, what the United States has accomplished, is, is basically about the violence and the oppression Haitian people feel under the thumb of, of the American military and the puppet governments that they've they propped up in, in Haiti. So what has been accomplished by the United States in Haiti over the, these five years was basically nothing of value. Um, no improvement in education, no improvement in the economy, no movement towards better and wiser governance. Basically, what's been achieved is, is various violence to actually these institutions. Quote, perhaps the most serious aspect of American brutality in Haiti is not to be found in individual cases of cruelty, numerous and inexcusable though they are, but rather in the American attitude, well illustrated by the diagnosis of an American officer discussing the situation and its difficulty. The trouble with this whole business is that some of these people with a little money and education think they're as good as we are. And this is the keynote of the American attitude in every of every American, in every of to every Haitian. Americans have carried American hatred to Haiti. They have planted this feeling of caste and color prejudice where it had not existed before. And such are the accomplishments of the United States in Haiti. The occupation has not only failed to achieve anything worthwhile, but it has made it impossible to do so because of the distrust and bitterness that has engendered the Haitian, uh, and that has engendered it in the Haitian people. Okay, then part three called Government of and by and for the National City Bank, as the title suggests, is really a, a breakdown of why this was occupation was done in the first place, basically to defend um, bankers and the role of bankers here in actually pushing for and supporting this occupation and, and getting it started. So th this is, you know, it's kind of a cliche that American empire was pushed by banking interests, certainly in Latin America. Um, there's that scene in Reds, right, where uh, there's that meeting and someone asks, like, what's this war about? And Reed stands up. He was the main character in that movie, played by Warren Beatty. He stands up and says, profit. The war is about profit, right? Um, and, of course, the socialist interpretation of World War One was America got involved in the war to promote, to, to protect American loans to the British and the French. You know, whether that's true in every case, I don't know, but. Johnson, I think, makes a pretty strong case that in Haiti, it was clearly almost 100 percent, you know, to back up, you know, the interest of banks and their their financial interests in in the Caribbean. Now, that's all traditional, classical, anti-colonial kind of reportage. The end, though, is a really wonderful effort by Johnson 
after having been there to introduce the people of Haiti to the United States because apparently you know through most of the press and the reportage on the Haitian occupation there wasn't that much of an effort to actually detail and document what the Haitian people were about what their lives were like and Johnson makes an effort in the space he has not much but but to show them as entrepreneurial as hardworking as as very independent minded in a way almost arguing that they're as they are as it were as they were you know a sister republic to the United States, right? Haiti was the second free republic in the Americas after the United States. Um, now, not always welcomed, certainly. The, the white South certainly feared Haiti because it was a, built on former slaves uh, achieving a republic, but that was the, the second republic in the New World. Here's a bit of what he writes about it. Quote, the masses of the Haitian people are splendid material for the building of a nation. They're not lazy. On the contrary, they're industrious and thrifty. Some observers mistakenly confound primitive methods with indolence. Anyone who travels Haitian roads is stuck, is stuck by the hundreds or even thousands of women, is struck by the hundreds and even thousands of women, boys and girls filing along mile after mile with their farms and garden produce on their heads or loaded on the backs of animals. With minor facilities, they could market their produce much more efficiently with far less effort, but lacking them, they are willing to walk and carry. For a woman to walk five or ten miles with a great produce, great load of produce on her head, which may barely realize her a dollar, is doubtless primitive, a wasteful expenditure of energy. But it is not a sign of laziness. Unquote. So, uh, a valiant effort, I think, to both condemn American imperialism in Haiti and to to try to take these steps to introduce the. The Haitian people to to the United States. And it's kind of sad how little apparently Americans at the time knew about Haiti or what, what they understood about Haiti. Okay, next and the last one we'll look at today was published in 1921. And it's not really an essay so much. It's his introduction to an edited book he put together called a, The Book of American Negro Poetry. And he talks a little bit about how he came to write this Work. And it sounded like he originally had an idea for a very small anthology of American poet, African-American poetry that would include just like, you know, a few dozen, actually. But he ended up including more and more, and it, it just kind of sprawled, as you can imagine. The anthology got bigger and bigger. And then it really became not so much about just these are like the best examples of, of black American poetry, but instead to show the, the depth and the richness of this tradition. So it becomes a very different style book. And it's a book I actually would, wouldn't mind getting my hands on and looking at a little bit more. Now, what we just have here, though, is his introduction to the to the book itself. So what he does is he, he kind of introduces the different genres and some of the different authors that are talked about in, in or are represented in, in the anthology. He starts now. I don't know if this is the order of things in in the anthology although i wouldn't be surprised if it was he starts though by talking about early creativity of of black artists um, he talks about plantation music plantation songs but then he very quickly gets into the into the post civil war the post emancipation period to look at traditions like the cakewalk of course that had its roots in slavery but also ragtime and blues and these other musical traditions which Johnson here is talking about as poetry and why not Johnson himself wrote poetry and then his brother 
adapted it to music and and he understood as well as anyone else that these 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 were not just music that there were also expressions of of poetry and the the words of the music joined together and you know there's similar similar logic and development in in the poetry of of this music and in the the musical aspect of it the purely musical aspect of it his conclusion to this section about these these different traditions and he includes folk music in this too um, and plantation music is quote this this is what he says this power of the negro to suck up the national spirit from the soil and create something artistic and original which at the same time possesses a note of universal appeal is due to a remarkable racial gift of adaptability it is more than adaptability it is transfusive quality and the negro has exercised this transfusive quality not only here in america where the race lives in large numbers but in european countries where the numbers been almost infinitesimal, end quote. And then he gives the examples of Pushkin and um, Coolidge Taylor and Dumas. Interestingly, uh, Chestnut made reference to the same people in his very similar work, I think, where he was, he, I know he was, he was writing an essay about black writing in general, not just poetry, but um, Pushkin's African ancestry, I think went back a few generations. Um, but he did descend from an African who was working in the in the Russian court, I think all the way back to Peter the Great's time. Uh, of course, Dumas' father was, was African-American. He was from Haiti. Maybe not Haiti, from the French West Indies. Anyways. We have a bit here on Phyllis Wheatley. So I'm sure Phyllis Wheatley is included in this anthology. And then quickly he gets to the more contemporary... Poets, and he, he talks about Paul Lawrence Dubar. He talks about some Caribbean artists like Claude McKay, and then just kind of sums up many of uh, the major trends in in Black poetry in the time he's, he's of, of Johnson's own life. And I think one big contribution that Johnson makes to in his survey of of African American poetry is that he does include the Caribbean writers, not just those that that came to the United States, but those who didn't, he, he includes Latin and Spanish, uh, people who wrote in Spanish. So he's not just talking about those in the United States. He does have a broader anthology, so or broader look at black poetry in this anthology. So I, I think it's worth digging up and looking at. Um, but again, we have his praise of McKay, which we've already seen in one of the New York Age articles. Um, so I, I think that's going to do it. I, I've covered about 100 pages of, of text there. Um, so, but it's, it's some good stuff here. I think the New York Age articles are a lot of fun. This essay on poetry, I'm more interested in just as, as an excuse to maybe pick up and find a copy of this anthology because it seems to have a lot of value to it um, to, to look at, even though there's probably much better anthologies out there now. But, you know, I'd like to see what Johnson put together in there. It's a, it's a shame we don't have access to the whole thing of course then it wouldn't be Johnson's writing right it would be these different poets um, and then we have this essay on Haiti which I think is a really significant contribution by Johnson to the national dialogue about Haiti and now obviously it didn't have much effect because the United States would continue to occupy Haiti for another 13 14 years but you know the beginnings of of a debate uh, about this and then maybe we can put this alongside other anti-imperialist writings if if anyone were to want to compare various anti-colonial writings like the stuff mark twain wrote you have this this essay which i think strongly fits in that that tradition 
Um, so not much else to say about it. Um, covers a lot of the similar ground that I think Du Bois' articles do. You know, the criticism of Garvey, the question of World War One, the question of you know political loyalties to the Republican or the Democratic Party. Um, what's coming up though? Um, well, what's coming up is the the, the conclusion to my my series on James Weldon Johnson. We're going to have a an article on. Well, we got an article on lynching. We got a bunch of stuff on art, including selections from, well, uh, Johnson's 1930 book, Black Manhattan, which is a really good book. You should read the whole thing if, if you're interested in this stuff. And then some of his, his poems, especially his poems collected in 50 years, and then his connected poems called God's Trombones, which were all written basically, with one exception, I think they were all written in the same month. But they're about they're kind of a reflection on black religion and the, the, the vernacular folk sermon tradition. So it's good stuff. Um, so we're kind of going to end with a, with a boom. I, I think in a way I, I really felt in this, epi this episode, I was retreading a lot of ground of, of stuff that we talked about with Du Bois and it didn't feel as fresh, but I think what we have in this, what we'll, we'll, we look forward to in the final episode on, on James Johnson um, will be kind of where he really shines, which is in his poetry, his reflection on black art um, and, and New York in particular. So uh, we can look forward to that. So as always, thank you so much for listening. If you've been reading along the works with me, the works of James Weldon Johnson, please um, leave your comments below or leave any questions or comments or anything I missed or anything forgot in these, these wonderful works. Uh, please let me know. I probably am wrong about a lot of this, so please... Uh, let me know what you what you think. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. So again, thanks for listening. I'll be see you next time with my finale of, of my series on James Bond Johnson.